Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I'm kicking off a new thing that we're going to try, a second weekly episode that will be posted on Fridays. The regular Tuesday episodes of The Dig are long and in-depth interviews with scholars, journalists, and activists. And they are, to be sure, not typically pegged to the 24-hour cable news and Twitter cycle. That's why I started the show and why, I presume, you listen to it. But I think the second weekly episode, a shorter interview making sense of some of what happened over the past week, will be a nice compliment. My first guest for this mini-dig, or diglet, is Sarah Jones, a writer at The New Republic. She is a really brilliant, newish voice on the left. You probably know her, and she has been my guest before. We're going to talk about the recent white supremacist violence in Charlottesville and the false equivalency created by the notion of an alt-left, a term that Trump recently invoked. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? Let me ask you this. What about the fact they came charging, that they came charging with clubs in their hands, swinging clubs? Do they have any problem? I think they do. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that was a horrible, horrible day. Wait a minute. I'm not finished. I'm not finished, fake news. Wow. Gross as always. But the term was actually popularized by centrist liberals as part of an ongoing smear campaign against socialists and radicals dating back to the Sanders campaign and really to way before. This new feature that we're launching today, and I'll try to make it weekly but can't yet promise that I can do so, will take time and money, and we can only continue to do it if our support on Patreon continues to grow. So please, if you haven't already, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a contribution. Even $1 a month is a big help. But if you can donate more, please do. And if you donate $10 or more, we have great books to send you. The libertarians want to say this is impossible. I'm offering all of this non-paywalled content for free. And the free market types would predict that you all would just try to free ride on this commons and make it into a tragedy. Well, we're already proving them wrong. We have more than 300 supporters. Please join us at patreon.com. Okay, here's the show. Sarah Jones, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me. So where did the term alt-left come from, and what did Donald Trump mean when he invoked it? So um, the term alt-left has been kind of beloved by the right wing for a long time. For obvious reasons, it's a really useful way for them to delegitimize their political enemies. Uh, So Sean Hannity has used it a lot. Anthony Scaramucci has used it. And a lot of uh, Democrats have also used it. Mostly people who you you, you could call either pundits or, you know, you have Neera Tandon, who's the head of the Center for American Progress, um, who have used it pretty frequently. Um, They seem to use it interchangeably with sort of Bernie Bro, and it's, it's 
sort of nebulously defined, but it sort of seems like they're using it to refer to anyone who's basically to their left and who is critical of Hillary Clinton or um, centrist Democrats more broadly. Um, so that's sort of the common usage. And by using the phrase Donald Trump, he was also using it to try to delegitimize you know, his, his political opponents on the left. Um, he was very much trying to punch left and, you know, look, both sides do it. It's not just the alt-right. Um, really sort of implying that this was not an unprovoked attack. Um, but we, we do have to examine the role of major Democrats in helping popularize the term and legitimize the term and making sure that it stays sort of active in public discourse. So included on this honor roll are Joan Walsh, Joanne Reed, Eric Bollert, Marcos Molistas, Neera Tandon, Josh Marshall, and I'm sure many more. What is up with these people? What's their problem <laughs> with the with socialists and with the, the left? Why do they spend so much time on TV and Twitter attacking it? It's really hard to to think it's any more serious than Twitter teams, if that makes sense. You know, some people have been mean to them online. And I think it is fair to point out, in my opinion at least, that some people did cross lines when they were trying to defend Bernie Sanders on Twitter, just as people have crossed lines when they were trying to defend Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. on Twitter. I don't think either side has a monopoly on bad behavior online here. But the term alt-left very much implies that there is one side that has sort of a monopoly on it, and it just so happens to be on to the left side of the political spectrum. Um, And that seems to be what they're referring to, but there doesn't seem to have been any consideration for the fact that by putting all in the term that there's this natural implication that they're comparing these people to the alt-right, to white nationalists who are calling for the creation of, you know, an ethno state who are murdering people. Um, so it was always a false equivalence, and it, it really just seemed to be a really effective way for them to punch left and delegitimize the left in the way that the right wing wants to delegitimize the left. Marcos Molistas, in, in a tweet after the white supremacist violence in Charlottesville, wrote, Anyone still pretending last year's election was about economic anxiety anymore? I mean, outside mm-hmm. of the alt-left, that is. It seems like the notion of an alt-left from more centrist Democrats is part of this broader argument that people on the socialist left are only concerned with economic justice at the expense of racial and gender justice and so-called social issues um, more broadly. Um, But as you write, when a horde of white supremacists overran Charlottesville with their tiki torches and Confederate flags... The left was at the front lines defending everyone else's right to freedom. A member of the left died for those rights. Um, Indeed, I've been told that two DSA members were hurt in the attack, and the ISO reports that one of its members was hurt as well. Right. I mean, it was always this deliberate mischaracterization of the left's views um, that the election had to be about either economic anxiety or racism and, and fat. I don't think that's an accurate portrayal of the left's perspective on the election. It's certainly not my perspective. I don't actually know anyone in real life who believes that, who isn't on the right wing. Um, 
you know, it was very much about both. And like Trump was talking about economic anxiety in very racialized terms. That doesn't mean that economic anxiety um, was the entire story. And it also doesn't mean that it's completely irrelevant to any analysis of the election. Um, so I, it's very, very strange to me that pe- people kind of continue to harp on that. But it really does seem to be sort of this outgrowth of bad feelings and hurt feelings over the primary. One irony about this is um, the that historically speaking, and right up, including right up to the present, it's been more democratic establishment groups that tend to push the idea that the party move right on on so-called social issues. Uh, there's mm-hmm. this new outfit called New Democracy, which is it appears the latest iteration of the Democratic Leadership Conference in Third Way which is making the case that Democrats must embrace the Clintonian path of the 1990s. And Uh they put out this, um, I guess it's a mission statement of sorts recently, and it makes the case that Democrats must embrace, uh, uh, quote, traditional values, especially faith and lifestyles. Um, And then in a part that I think was later deleted, that they should take seriously people's concern concerns that immigration contributes to the quote dilution of national identity um Mm -hmm. and they also decry economic victimhood and business bashing and call for putting national security first in thought indeed um so how is it that the center gets away with with accusing the left of trying to throw women and immigrants and people of color under the bus when you constantly actually have position papers being put out by centrist groups um, explicitly calling for the party to do just that. I mean, so much of this is happening online and specifically on Twitter, where I really see people hyper-personalize conflicts that happen on Twitter and assign to them greater political meaning than they actually have. Um, so if a Bernie Sanders supporter, if a self, if a self-identified Bernie Sanders supporter is mean to you or like, <laughs> let's be generous and like says something like actively very sexist to you, um, there is this sort of dominant discourse on Twitter that says, okay, well, naturally this is indicative of a, of a, of a broader phenomenon that is like specific to Sanders supporter when in fact sexism is, you know, literally everywhere and there are sexist Clinton supporters, just like there are sexist Sanders supporters. Um, everything becomes very hyper-personalized. You know, Donald Trump is gaslighting America, um, and everything can sort of been, be reduced to these interpersonal terms. And so it becomes very easy to forget um, that it is actually centrists who are triangulating on important social issues like abortion. And that was coming from Nancy Pelosi, even though I haven't been, you know, exactly thrilled by some of Bernie Sanders' statements on the issues either. Um and so, like a lot, of, a lot of the center gets away with it, and people continue to punch left. Um, so that's my mm-hmm. personal theory about it, at least. How do you see all of this playing out in the lead up to the 2018 midterms? The Democratic leadership has recently put out um, a new agenda that includes some good things, like a fifteen dollar per hour minimum wage, but also kind of oddly prioritizes, emphasizes, I believe, is its first point, um, better train, better job training. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Better skills. Better skills. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just this general failure, I would say, to think about specific policy, policy issues as part of a broader framework. So they don't think about it in terms of 
power, for example, like we would say, we would think of it in those terms, like who has power and who does not have power. And that's why we support a $15 minimum wage. And I, I don't think that the leaders of the Democratic Party think like that at all. And so you sort of have these scattershot policy positions where, okay, you people really want $15 minimum wage and we agree income inequality is bad. So we'll give you that. But also here are all these other things. Like they don't, they don't think about it in broader terms at all. Um, and that's a problem. And, you know, there is this tendency to try to have it both ways. Like we're going to, you know, we're going to give the Sanders wing some concessions and then we're, we're still going to means test and we're still going to talk about better job skills. Um, and the fact is that's, that's really not going to work. They're, they're irreconcilable positions. Um, and you, you can't give, you can't give your voter base what it wants without alienating your donor class. And it's also, it, it, I think you're suggesting that's also kind of bloodless, mm-hmm. right? It's like a, a bunch of policy papers, but without a broader, it lacks vision. And to the extent that it is a vision, it's a vision that lacks any sort of conflict or or enemy, which right. is what both Trump and Sanders in very different ways did. Yeah, have. absolutely. I mean, you, you if you want people to turn out to the polls to vote for you, and they haven't been turning out to the polls to vote for you, you you have to rethink your strategy and you have to give people vision. You have to give people an enemy to fight. And fortunately for those of us on the left, there are real enemies to fight. You don't have to make anything up. Like you can just tell people the truth and you can talk about it in very clear moral terms and people would turn out to vote and people would, I think, unite under under the democratic party's banner, not to put it in like too strong game of Thrones terms there. But um, I do think people would turn out, and, and instead we we see a party that it just doesn't know what it's trying to do. It'll take one step forward, it'll take a couple steps back, and then like three steps sideways, and it, it it's like it can't discern the path forward, and so it's trying to make everybody happy when in fact it's just not possible. Another challenge um, that Democrats face beyond just being mired in this muddled centrist messaging is that the bench is incredibly weak. Um, You've written a bit about this in the last few Uh months. Um, You wrote one piece arguing that um, Kamala Harris, who's come in for a lot of criticism from the left, that we should, if she becomes more left, uh, that we should embrace that. Um, What do you... Who do you see um, as potentially um, coming up as a more Berniecrat lefty leader who might be able to contest things within the Democratic Party? Because as you point out, um, there is a lot of independent organizing outside mm-hmm. of the Democratic Party going on, but it's way, way, way in its early stages. It is. Uh, I, I asked myself this question every day and I I don't know that I have the sort of answers that I would like to have. Um, you do have senators like uh, Kristen Gillibrand who are responsible to pressure from the left. Um, we recently saw her disavow her previous support for the anti-BDS bill, which was a very positive move. Um, you do have people who are talking me, talking more openly about the need for Medicare for all, which is, a, again, a very positive mo- uh, move. Uh, same for a higher minimum wage. Um, and it feels very defeatist to say that this is the best we can 
reasonably hope for, but I, I worry that that's actually the case. Um, and in 2018 and 2020, that is the best that we can hope for until, you know, we have been organizing longer and people do come up through the ranks of the activist left in a way that they kind of haven't been previously. Um, but, you know, there's no one who really stands out to me as like, you know, this person is, is going to be the person who's going to give us what we want. I, I don't know. I wish I did. I agree with you that we should celebrate when people who we disagree with in the Democratic Party move to our position on an issue. But it still worries me on two levels, both on a on a policy level and on a political mm-hmm. level. On the policy level, it worries me when people have a lack of, of consistency over mm-hmm. time. Not that people can never change their mind on everything, but when they seem always willing to... Uh, move in whatever direction the political winds are blowing, there's a question of, of of trust and whether they'll actually, if they are elected, follow through on on what they promise. Mm-hmm. Politically, it, politically, it worries me because looking at um, both Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and Bernie Sanders here, one thing that really seemed to appeal to people about these uh, otherwise strikingly uncharismatic old dudes is their decades of consistency, even when that consistency put them into the political wilderness during the heyday of the neoliberal era? Mm-hmm. So how, how, how do you how do you grapple with 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 that? Yeah, I think I think those are both very fair points. So to touch on your point about consistency, I agree. That's something that worries me a lot as well. The fact that we kind of don't have very many people who we can point to as having a really consistent record on the issues that are important. Um, and I, we don't have any guarantee if, you know, put in office that they will remain true um, to those positions. I think that's a very real fear um, I just kind of don't see any other way around it, if that makes sense. Um, I think the bench is the bench for now, and I think we just have to focus on pushing them as far to the left as we can and maintaining that pressure once they're in office. I think that's sort of the only path forward that I see at the moment. Um, and I wish we had more Jeremy Corbyn's in the U.S. because I do think his example is so important and so relevant, and Bernie Sanders is the closest we have to that. Um He's Ellison as well as another one, um, but we just don't very, have very many figures that we we can sort of point to as fulfilling that role. I do think the Democratic Party needs to pay very, very close attention to that. Like, forget Macron in France and forget Trudeau. <laughs> you need to be paying attention to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and I do hope that they will sort of learn the lesson that is there for them to learn and realize that people will respond to a really unapologetically left-wing moral manifesto but this is the democratic party that we're talking about so i don't exactly have a lot of faith um i have a listener question for you (laughs) hi this is jacob kramer uh in your article you write the left demands the redistribution of wealth you may find that terrifying but it's not actually terrorism on the libertarian right there's a characterization of taxation as violence to what extent do you think the mainstream liberal center actually has internalized the notion of equating economic redistribution with physical violence? Thanks. I think they've actually internalized it a lot. I don't think that they would necessarily admit to it. 
they may not even necessarily put it in those terms and may not call it violence, um, but I would read their antipathy towards the idea as, as sort of evidence that there is this eternalized belief that it is there is something wrong about it and that it is at least theft of some kind. One last question from the last week's news. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about the campaign to have Trump oust Bannon? On one level, it seems good because it seems like anything that keeps Trump in disarray is good unless it like provokes him to start a nuclear war with North Korea, but that's another subject. But on another level, I feel like it might risk making it seem like the problem is is Bannon and the you know so-called nationalists in his administration and that the problem is not Trump himself and that actually Pence, Kushner, and Cohen are reasonable guys when they're actually mm-hmm. quite horrible on their own accord. What do you, what do you make of, of this push to, to get Bannon out in the wake of Charlottesville? I'm really glad you brought that up because I've had that exact thought and I've been, you know, kind of thinking through it and trying to decide how to articulate why it makes me a little uncomfortable because I agree that, you know, Bannon is a white nationalist and he's a terrible human being who shouldn't be anywhere near the seat of power in the United States. I do worry that this push to oust him almost treats him like like he's more of an anomaly than he is. And I worry frequently that people are losing sight of the fact that Trumpism is bigger than Donald Trump. It's not even really specific to Donald Trump. It's the Republican Party itself. And I see it as being sort of related to this this drive so many liberals seem to have to find serious, rational conservatives, and there aren't any. There just aren't any. You know, they're they're antagonistic to the very concept of a social contract. Um, <laughs> the New York Times editorial uh, editors have also had this uh, problem of searching for the, the rational conservatives. <laughs> they have. They have. And it's actually been a really useful uh, lesson for everyone. It just doesn't work at all. Um, so, yes, by all means, get Bannon out of the White House. He's absolutely a danger and a threat, and people are right to be very upset about his presence there. Um, but let's not lose sight of the fact that the, the problem is much, much bigger than Bannon, and it's much, much older than Bannon. Sarah Jones, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Sarah Jones is a writer at The New Republic. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once reportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, and maybe, if this works out, twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if you're on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. They really do help introduce us to new listeners. What also introduces us to new listeners is you telling your friends in real life on social media. So please do that. We appreciate it. And please find us on Patreon.com. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Even a few dollars a month is a huge help. Thank you.